Good morning, ARC family. Thank you for gathering together in spirit this way uh, to praise our Lord and Savior and to hear him speak to us through his word. And so I want to invite us now to pray as we give attention to God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would speak to us by your word. We've been hearing the voices of so many all week long. And Lord, we, we need now desperately to hear from you to be built up by your word, to be changed by your word, to be addressed, corrected, strengthened, helped, giving hope in your word. So feed us, O Lord, we pray. You are our good shepherd. Lead us into the green pastures of your word and feed our souls, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is truly on Team Jesus? That's the question I think is hanging over the church world right now. Who's really on Team Jesus? I'm watching some evangelicals desperately try to distance themselves from those evangelicals, the ones on January 6th who were in the crowd that stormed the Capitol building, those evangelicals who voted overwhelmingly for President Trump, and maybe even some of them to this day, contend that Trump was God's man and the election was stolen. And I'm watching those very evangelicals, those evangelicals, say, hey, we're on God's side. And those other evangelicals who reject us, well, they're not really for God. Well, who really is on Team Jesus? And it's happening not just with evangelicals, but it's happening with individuals and denominations. A very high-profile figure in the Southern Baptist Convention announced this past week that she was leaving the convention, pulling her books from Lifeway Bookstore, because she was tired of the convention not addressing effectively issues like sexual abuse, sexism, racism, Christian nationalism, and the like. Not long after that news broke, a very prominent pastor took to Twitter and said, hey, we should care less about who's leaving and who's staying and get on with the mission of the convention. Well, who's on Team Jesus? The one who leaves because of an ineffective addressing of serious sin? Or the one who stays for a desire to cooperate with others in a great commission? Then there are those who say they are deconstructing or decolonizing their faith. They have become suspicious that what they once knew and what they learned in other places is tainted and warped by racism, by white supremacy, by cultural arrogance. But as I watch some of them, some of them appear to be deconstructing themselves right out of the faith decolonizing themselves right out of the kingdom. Some people don't seem to be able to tell the difference between removing the subculture that surrounds the faith and actually embracing the faith itself. And so some wind up in tribes and cliques and ways of thinking that don't look very Christian. All the while, they are critical of those Christians that they left. 
Well, who's on Team Jesus? The colonizer or the decolonizer? If any of you have played or watched competitive sports, you know that the first thing a player must do is make the team. Teams are exclusive things. There are those who belong and those who don't. And keeping that clear, who belongs to the team and who doesn't, is really quite essential to being an effective team, maintaining the boundaries of in and out. But even once you're on the team, there's some things that you got to learn. You have to learn the culture of the team. You have to learn the roles and the positions that people play on the team. And on most teams, that takes a lot of practice and a lot of support. But Team Jesus is no different. We have to be clear about how it is a person gets on that team. And then we have to be clear about the culture of that team and about the roles that people are expected to play on Team Jesus. If we're not clear, then we run the risk of putting on any old jersey and calling it Team Jesus. And in fact, it may not be. This morning, we're coming back to Mark's Gospel and our series there, which we call Follow Me, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 50, we're going to see the Lord Jesus addressing his squad. And we're going to see what it takes to be on Team Jesus. Now, if I could remind you, just before this section we're going to look at, we've come to the sort of defining turning point of Mark's Gospel. We've come to this place where Jesus has now began to speak explicitly about the fact that he is going to go to Jerusalem, be arrested, be tried and convicted, crucified, die, and three days later, be raised again. The truth about his real mission has come now into the full view of the disciples and those who follow him. So now it's time for the world to decide if it's on Team Jesus or on some other team. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to put my main point in two short sentences, and then we're going to use as an outline the phrases in that last sentence. Here's the main point. Team Jesus does not include the proud, the divisive, or the sinful. Team Jesus does not include the proud, the divisive, or the sinful. To be a member of Team Jesus, we must be humble, helpful, and holy. Humble, helpful, and holy. Those are our three points this morning. We must be humble, verses 33 to 37. We must be helpful, verses 38 to 41. We must be holy, verses 42 to 50. Look with me in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked him, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, 
And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So who's on team Jesus? First of all, it's the humble. It's the humble. Verse 33 says the Lord is with his disciples in Capernaum. You remember Capernaum is kind of their home base. That's where they go back to, to sort of rest and regroup before they go out and travel and preach the gospel again. They're sitting in the house, apparently shortly after returning, and Jesus asks a question. He says, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 34 says the room got quiet. Tells us why. While they were traveling, notice, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now that sentence, they're arguing about who was the greatest, reveals that Jesus and the disciples are thinking about really different things in this moment. As we said, when you look back at verses 30 to 32, Jesus was thinking about the cross. He was thinking about Golgotha. He was thinking about the crucifixion and the resurrection and trying to get them to understand that as the central aspect of his earthly mission. But the disciples, hearing him talk about being killed and buried and resurrected, they're like brothers at the basketball court. They're like, who got next? And then they get in an argument, and all of them turn into Muhammad Ali. All of them talking about, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. I'm a bad man. And so they're arguing in their pride. And in that, we come to see the, the pollution that pride is, don't we? Pride will make us want to replace Jesus even while we're sitting with Jesus. I love the way J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop of a, of a couple of centuries ago, put it when he was sort of meditating on this text. He writes this, It is an awful fact, whether we allow it or admit it or not, that pride is one of the commonest sins which beset human nature. We are all born Pharisees. 
We all naturally think far better of ourselves than we are. We all naturally fancy that we deserve something better than we have. It is an old sin. It began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve thought that thought they had not got everything that their marriage deserved. It is a subtle sin. It prevents repentance, keeps men back from Christ, checks brotherly love, and nips in the bud spiritual anxiety. Let us watch against it and be on our guard of all garments. None is so graceful, none wears so well, and none is so rare as true humility. Pride is sneaky. It's always with us, isn't it? And Jesus sort of speaks right into that issue as he calls his disciples to this true humility. Notice the call to humility in verse 35. And he sat down and collected and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Did you catch that? Last of all. Servant of all. Last of all means the disciple is not trying to be in first place. He's not trying to climb the ladder inside the kingdom and take over the throne. Servant of all means that the disciple is actually eager to care for others. He's more interested, she's more interested in giving rather than getting. See, they must be both last and servant. Those two things go together in the kingdom on Team Jesus because it's an expression of the deepest kind of humility. And we can be good at one half or the other, can't we? Right? There are people who are, who are last, and yet they would rather be served. In fact, they turn the fact that they are last into a kind of entitlement, serve me. And there are people who serve, but they would rather be first. And in fact, they turn their acts of service into an entitlement to be first. And both of those halfsies come from the same root of pride, of self-regard, of self-promotion and self-centeredness, don't they? But Jesus joins rank with role. Jesus is creating the, 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 the sort of low-rank, high-service disciple in this text. Low-rank, last of all, high-service, servant of all. And to be on his team to play this kind of role it requires true humility. And we see what the Lord is doing, don't we, when we think about greatness and leadership in our culture. He's flipping our ideas of greatness and leadership on, on its head. You can almost hear him, as he says so often in other parts of the Gospels, that the first shall be what? Last. And the last shall be what? First. And this reversal of things, this turning worldly ideas of greatness on its head, this applies everywhere in the Christian life. It applies here to the apostles and their work for the kingdom. It applies today in the churches to leaders in local churches. It, it applies to husbands and how they care for their wives. It applies to workplaces and sports teams. There's no place where this flipping of greatness to make the lowly, the humble, the servant, the greatest of all, there's no place where 
the kingdom doesn't do that. And so this principle here in verse 35, it undermines every kind of corruption that attaches itself to the idea of greatness and leadership. And just so his disciples get it, Jesus gives them a model of humility too. You see that in verses 36 to 37? He calls a child uh, into the room uh, in front of them. He, he shows this holy affection for the child. He hugs the child. Uh, and he brings attention to this, this little one. A child in that day would have been perhaps the most vulnerable in society. They would have been completely dependent upon adults around them. They have no means for providing for themselves. And so it's no surprise that often Jesus will use, use children as a way of symbolizing the kind of humility and faith and dependence upon God that his disciples are to have. So we think of Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, where we read, Unless you turn and become like children, you will not ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Humility is the cover charge for entrance into heaven. The kind of humility that becomes like a little child, dependent upon the adults around them. And then in verse 37, notice, Jesus teaches us the reward of humility, doesn't he? We saw the call of humility. We saw then the model of humility. Now in verse 37, we see the reward of humility. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. The reward applies to whoever. That means it's open to anyone and everyone who's a disciple. Now, the reward begins with receiving one such child. And here I think Jesus is using the child uh, with double meaning. One, uh, little children, literally. But actually, more specifically, what he has in mind are his disciples. He often refers to his disciples as little ones, as children. And so he's saying, whoever receives a Christian disciple coming with the gospel, notice the reward. They receive me. And then he says there's more. They, they not only receive me, but whoever receives me also receives the Father, also receives God. And you see what's happening here. Jesus is saying that what really happens in the preaching of the gospel and the receiving of the gospel in repentance from sin and a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is that the person who repents from their sin believes that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected for their sins and for their justification, they not only receive Jesus, they receive God. God is giving himself in his fullness to us in the gospel, in his Son. And so, the great reward of the Christian life is not just forgiveness, not just justification, uh, not just to, to be in heaven. The great reward of the Christian life is to have God himself, the infinite God, full of love, full of mercy, full of beauty and splendor and wonder and glory, to have this God who is life give you a share of his life that you might abide with him forever. That's the offer of the gospel. That's why the gospel is good news. 
because God is giving himself to sinners who would repent and believe on Jesus. Is that you this morning? I wonder if you have tuned in this morning and you're not yet a Christian. I wonder if you have enough humility to receive God. And that may seem a strange way to put it, but let me tell you why you would need this kind of humility. It's because you would need to admit to God that you are in fact a sinner. And a lot of people who are proud don't like to do that. And you would have to admit to God and admit before the world that the way you were living your life is wrong, that you are wrong and you have done wrong, and that you need to turn around. And a lot of proud people don't like to admit that they, they're wrong, do they? And so you would have to admit your sin, admit you're wrong, and turn around then to God. And you would have to admit a third thing, that you are not good enough to save yourself from God's judgment. However good a person you are, you are not that good. And you would need to be humble enough to admit that in order to truly come to Jesus and receive him as your Savior and to receive him as your Lord and in receiving him, receive God. So I ask you again, are you humble enough to receive this good news that Jesus has died for you to pay for your sins, the wrong you have done, and he is been raised from the grave to provide eternal life for you, righteousness with God, which you could never achieve. Are you humble enough to trust Jesus alone and to follow him right into the lap of God? I pray you are. I pray that you would repent this morning, even now, right now, you would confess your sins and confess that you have been and are wrong and ask God for his forgiveness and put your hope and your faith and your confidence that Jesus has paid your sins and Jesus has been raised from the grave. And in Jesus, you will be forgiven. Receive Jesus as Lord and receive God as your Father. Who's on team Jesus? The humble. Well, who else is on team Jesus? The helpful. That's what we see in verses 38 to 41. Apparently, when Jesus starts talking about uh, the children and he starts talking about what it is to um, receive him, his comment sort of brings up a memory for John. You remember John is one of Jesus' disciples, one of the twelve, who's often called the beloved disciple. Uh, John remembers in verse 38, he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, that's a remarkable sentence, really. That's a, that's a fantastic sentence, because it reveals so much to us about what's unhelpful. Now, I think one of the great challenges in the Christian church today is this challenge of tribalism. Tribalism happens when someone um, is so aware of their own group and so loyal to their own group that they exalt their group over other groups. They, they other other people and then exalt their own group over other people. And this can happen in all kinds of ways. It can happen racially or ethnically. It can happen culturally. It can happen politically. It, it can happen theologically, even within the same religion. 
this, this thing happens all the time. Human beings are very naturally tribal. We love to form groups and cliques. We love to talk about who's in the group and who's out. And we love to sort of create rules and cultures of loyalty to the group and exalt our group above others. And I think that is the great problem, one of the great problems in the Christian church right now. And that's what I think Jesus is encountering in John here in verse 38, a form of tribalism. And I want us to break down John's statement in verse 38, uh, because I think when we break this statement down, we see five problems that tribalism really creates for us. Number one, tribalism will cause us to overlook God's power at work through others. John says, we saw someone casting out demons. <laughs> Get your mind around this. John and the boys roll up on a scene. There's a cat out there casting out demons. And John knows what that looks like because he's seen Jesus doing it. He rolls up on the scene, cats casting out demons. But then John seems to downplay that fact. He seems to overlook and to minimize that display of God's might. Listen. There was a clear demonstration of God's power, but that did not alert John to God's presence. The tribalism will blind us that way, cause us to overlook God's power. Number two, tribalism will erase the names and contributions of other saints. It will erase people. It will erase their contributions. John simply says, notice again in verse 38, we saw someone. Now, if you walk up on a scene where someone is casting out demons and you see it and you recognize what's happening, what's the most natural question you're going to ask? One of the first questions you're going to ask is, who is that? What's his name? I bet you they got that person's name. And yet when John tells a story, the man is anonymous. He has no name. He has no face. He has no markings because he's not in the tribe. Tribalism will cause you to erase the contributions of other people to the work of the kingdom simply because they're not in your tribe. What's the third thing? Tribalism will make us suspicious of another person's confession of faith and their motivations. It's clear that the man was performing this exorcism, notice in verse 38, in Jesus' name, in your name. John even recognizes that. And this man was doing this in Jesus' name. He wasn't doing it in his own name. He wasn't claiming any fame for himself. He wasn't telling people that it was his own power. He was giving glory to Jesus. He was operating in Jesus' authority. That was his profession. And that was his motivation. But tribalism will make you question that. Is he really a Christian? Why is he doing that? But what, what does he want? He must be trying to get something. See, when you other people that way, you grow suspicious of their motivation and their profession. Notice the fourth thing. That tribalism will cause us to oppose God's work. It will cause us to oppose God's work. John says, and we tried to stop him. 
That's crazy, beloved. He rose up on a man operating in Jesus' name, casting out demons, defeating the powers of hell. And John said, we need to put a stop to this. That's what tribalism is like. You can serve the tribe and end up opposing God. Number five, tribalism will replace Jesus with the tribe. Here's the reason that John gave for opposing this man doing the mighty works of God. John says the guy was casting out demons and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Us. That's the wrong pronoun, beloved. That pronoun should have been you. But what's happening with John is he's coming to think that to follow Jesus is the same as to follow the tribe, to belong to the tribe, to belong to his group of disciples. John has so exalted his group of disciples that he thinks following their group is the same thing as following Jesus. He's replaced discipleship to Jesus with discipleship to the tribe. That's tribalism at its finest. It rewards loyalty to the tribe instead of loyalty to Jesus. It opposes the work of God in other people and other places simply because it assumes that God only works in our tribe. You see what a deadly poison this is. And we see it everywhere. Reformed folks can't listen to non-reformed folks or read their books. Pentecostal folks can't trust non-Pentecostal folks because they like they ain't got the spirit. Egalitarians and complementarians are suspicious of each other's claims to be in the faith. Cessationists or non-charismatics don't think God is at work among charismatics, and charismatics don't think the same about cessationists. Black Christians are fed up today with white Christians. And white Christians have long been questioning the solidity and the sincerity of black faith and theology. Republican Christians don't think that you can be a Christian and to be a Democrat. Christians who are Democrat think that Republican and Christians are, are, are contradictory. And on and on it goes. We have tribes inside of tribes inside of tribes. And it makes the work of God small and makes the people of God unhelpful. John, in verse 38, is also giving a testimony to his unhelpfulness. And so let me ask you, are you tribal? Are you a tribal Christian? Because, beloved, to the extent that we are tribal Christians, we may be helpful for our tribe, but we may be unhelpful for the kingdom. We can be helpful for our tribe and be harming Team Jesus. Tribalism and the kingdom just don't fit. Jesus is creating a whole new tribe made up of people from every what? Tribe and language and nation and so on. So there was no way to be on Team Jesus in a helpful way. 
if we also team tribe. And notice how Jesus speaks into this, how he corrects John here and the disciples uh, in the verses that follow, verses 39 and 41. You might sort of break this down into three quick points from Jesus. Number one, Jesus says, those who are helpful should not be stopped. That's verse 39. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Jesus is saying, this is a mighty work. In other words, this work comes from God. And they say, the person who does a mighty work in my name, he's not going to do that on the one hand, and in the next breath, slander me, meaning his profession of faith and his motivation is also pure. It's real simple, beloved. God ain't going to give his power to his haters. So where you see his power on display genuinely we meant not to oppose that, but to pray for that. Those who are helpful to God's kingdom are on God's team, are on team Jesus. And here's the second thing, verse 40. Those who are not against us are for us, the Lord says. This is a big definition now of team Jesus. The Lord only excludes those professing Christians who are actively against him and his disciples and the work of the kingdom. Everybody else doing the Lord's work, he's including on team Jesus. Whether they are actively for or just plain neutral, he said they on the squad. John seemed to be thinking the opposite. John seemed to be thinking something along the lines of those who are not for us are against us. That's the way tribalism works. And that way of thinking makes everybody an enemy. Unless they do it just the way we do it, just the way we like it. But if we're on team Jesus now, we don't go around defining other Christians doing God's work in God's power as our enemy. Instead, we develop, develop what is called a Catholicity. Not, not Roman Catholicism, just means the word just means universal. We develop a high view of the universal church. That God has Christians, yes, in our tribe, but also over in that tribe, and that tribe, and that tribe. And we're all, if we're thinking rightly, we're all to recognize that we're all on Team Jesus. So let me ask you a question. How would our attitudes and our thinking have to change with regard to other groups of Christians if we recognize that they were all on Team Jesus? What kind of comments would we have to stop making? What kind of nonverbal, dismissive gestures would we have to stop making? What kind of positive affirmations and encouragements would we have to start making if we were to be less tribal and more Catholic, recognizing that anyone who's not against Jesus is for Jesus. And how free would we be to then go on and serve Christ and do the mighty works of God ourselves if we could stop policing and condemning all the other groups of Christians? 
How free and joyful, how, how powerful and full of faith would we be if we could resign from being the Christian police and just enjoy Jesus and enjoy the work of God wherever it occurred? It would be liberating, beloved. Jesus' words turn every Christian into an ally. Everybody about the Lord's business is on our Lord's team, whether or not they're in our tribe. And Jesus says a third thing here. He says, those who are helpful are also rewarded. Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here's how I would paraphrase verse 41. Whatever kind of Christian you are, if you are on Team Jesus, if you serve the church, you will be rewarded. You will be rewarded by God. You will be rewarded in his eternal kingdom and very often rewarded in this life as well. Now, pastorally, verse 41, I think what Jesus wants to do is to motivate us by the promise of reward. This is why we see promises made to Christians in so many places in the Bible in so many different circumstances. Let me, let me take us through a few of them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 10, verses 41 and 42. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Luke 6, 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 14. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. 
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord, the Lord Christ. Hebrews 10, 32-35. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You see that? A helpful Christian life is a rewarded life. And that just begs questions of us because we are meant to be motivated by these precious promises of reward. And so one question would be this. Do, 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 do you and I run the Christian race like we are running for a crown? Like we are running for a reward? Another question might be this. Do, do we have any specific intent and plan to live a helpful Christian life in service to God? What's our plan? What are we going to put into action? Are, are, is our intent, is our ambition, is our motivation specific enough to motivate us, to stir us up in loving good deeds? What's our plan for being engaged in the PSA teams? What's our plan for um, serving in children's ministry or, or serving in hospitality? What's our plan for going out and being little children who take the gospel to, to others in the community? Do we have a specific plan for serving Jesus in such a way as to seek the reward that he is guaranteed to whoever serves him and serves his church? Because on Team Jesus, they're not only the humble, they're also the helpful. And number three, on Team Jesus, they're those who are holy. They're those who are holy. We must be humble, we must be helpful, we must be holy. That's what we see in verses 42 to 50. Now in this section, I think we can break Jesus' words down into, into three thoughts. Here's the first thought. It's bad to sin. It's bad to sin. That's what we see in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let that imagery, let your mind catch up with that imagery. A millstone was a big, giant, round stone that was used. You would turn it with the use of horses or mules or oxen. It required a beast that strong to, to turn it. You would turn it in order to grind the meal, to grind the grains. Right? It was heavy. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's better that you take that big old heavy stone wearing hundreds of pounds and tie it around a person's neck and throw that stone into the sea with it tied around that person's neck 
It's better for that person to feel the sharp, sudden snap of that rope on his neck and to be pulled off the boat, to be pulled off land or whatever, to be pulled into the water head first and to be pulled all the way down to the bottom of the sea, clutching at that rope, kicking, trying to turn upright, trying to hold your breath while you fight the, the snatch of that rope and the weight of that stone, while water is flowing into your nose and eventually into your mouth and filling your lungs until you, until you drown. Jesus says it would be better to die a gruesome death like that than to cause a little one, whether a literal child or a disciple, to sin. That's how bad sin is. And that's, that's what makes holiness so very important. So the first thing Jesus says in verse 42 is it's bad to sin. The second thing that he begins to say is it's better to be sanctified. It's better to be sanctified. And he makes that point with three more striking images. Now, none of these images are meant to be taken literally. These are figures of speech. It's hyperbole. But even though you're not to take it literally, the point that they make, you are to take to heart. They're making very big points, and Jesus is using very big imagery to make those points. And this is what he's saying. It's better to be sanctified. So in verse 43, he says, listen, if your hand causes you to sin, it's better to cut it off. In verse 45, he says, if your foot causes you to sin, better to cut it off. In, in verse 47 and 48, if your eye causes you to sin, it's better to rip it out. So if there's anything in you that, that motivates your hands to sin, if there's anything in you that causes your feet to take you in the path of sin, if there's anything in you that causes your eye to look lustfully and sinfully, better to get rid of those things. Better to pluck out the eye, cut off the arm, cut off the foot, and go to heaven than to have a whole body and go to hell. Do, do we believe that? That it's better to have half our body and to be in heaven than to have our whole body and to burn in hell. That's how important holiness is. That's how important, how serious sin is. And when we think about these images of cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, plucking out your eye, those images teach us something about sanctification. They teach us, first of all, what sanctification requires. Sanctification requires mortification. That we put to death whatever is sinful in us, whatever tempts us to sin. As John Owen said, we be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But these images teach us also something else about sanctification and mortification. They teach us what sanctification and mortification feel like. Think of these images. How painful it must be to cut off an arm or a foot. How excruciating it would be to, 
to gouge out your own eye. Well, beloved, if you've ever been stuck in sin, then you know that if you have been loving that sin, that's what it feels like. It feels painful. It feels like you're cutting off part of yourself because sin has come to reign in your mortal body. And so now we have to, we have to cut it off or we have to gouge it out. And beloved, when we give ourselves to sin and then we have to stop that sin and turn from that sin because we've come to our senses, it very often hurts. That's why we should never flirt with our temptations and we should never cozy with our sins. But this pain of sanctification brings happiness. This pain of sanctification, it produces holiness. And the pain of sanctification leads us to heaven. For without holiness, no one will see God. Perhaps you're fighting a sin right now. Maybe you're the only one who knows what it is, you and God. Please, please, I beg of you, learn to tell the difference in your fight against sin. Turn, tell the difference between the whispers of Satan and the truth of Jesus. Because when, when, when fighting our sin requires us to cut off our arm, cut off our feet, gouge our, our eyes, and we instinctively pull back because we know it's going to hurt. We perceive that losing that sin is going to hurt us. Here's how Satan whispers. It hurts too much to cut off your sin. Don't do it. You, you're giving up too much to cut off your sin. It doesn't take all of that. It's not worth it to give this up completely. Hang on to just a little bit of it. Also, the lies of the serpent. But here's what Jesus says three times in this passage. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. It is better for you to enter life, eternal life, lame, than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Jesus says it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Well, I just want to ask you this morning, in, in your battle, in my battle, in our battle with sin, who do we believe? Do we believe the whispers of Satan? or the truth of Jesus. If there's a sin in your life that you are finding difficult to give up, difficult to mortify, to put to death, there's a sin in your life you feel like you just can't bear to be rid of it, who are you listening to? Get clear on that. Who are you listening to? Stop listening to Satan and his lies. Stop listening, listening to the flesh and its desires. Stop listening to the world and its deception and listen to Jesus because the key word in those statements is the word better. It is better to be without a hand, a foot, or an eye and to be in 
heaven, to have eternal life, than it is to have both eyes, both hands, both feet, and to be burning in an unquenchable fire of God's judgment in hell. It is better. Jesus is offering you better. God is giving you better. The kingdom of heaven is better. Eternal life is better than all of our sins combined. Sins that then only end in hell. So if we would be holy, as our Father is holy, we have to come to understand it is better to be sanctified and to have eternal life than it is to be fully embodied and to suffer eternal judgment. Who are you going to listen to? Satan or Jesus? And here's the last thing that Jesus tells us here in verses 49 and 50. He says, basically, keep your salt and your fire. So now Jesus is like a good rapper. He's mixing metaphors. And now he moves away from uh, cutting off and gouging out to salt and fire. And he uses these two metaphors in a way to help us understand something about the sacrificial nature of Christian discipleship, the sacrifices we make in being on Team Jesus. Here's how uh, one commentator put it. The most promising interpretation of verses 49 and 50 is to understand them against the backdrop of temple sacrifice, in which both fire and salt played indispensable roles. Israelite burnt offerings, an unblemished bull, ram, or bird, were required to be wholly consumed by fire in order to be acceptable. Smoke rising from the consuming fire was a pleasing incense to Yahweh. Salt, too, was not only a sign of the covenant, Numbers 18, 19, but it was required to accompany all Israelite sacrifices. You see what the writer is saying there, that these images of salt and fire, really to understand them, you have to think about Israel's Old Testament worship in the temple, where they sacrifice animals to God as a representation of uh, making atonement for their sins. And that when an animal was sacrificed, it had to be wholly consumed by that fire. And so you think of the writer in Hebrews when he says, our God is a consuming fire. Well, he is, and he is that to his people. Except this is not the fire of judgment now. This is the fire of purification. And so here, what Jesus is saying in verses 49 and 50, when he compares us to salt and fire, he's saying that we are living sacrifices. The language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12. That, that our bodies are an offering to God. Our souls are an offering to God. And in this life, we are not spared pains and tribulations and trials and suffering. Those are the salts. Those are the fires that go along with the thing sacrificed. But it's also what makes us salty. It's what makes us useful in the world. Is what contributes to our holiness. So we are called to be consumed by God, our holy fire. And we are called to be salted and to therefore become a preservative and to be preserved 
by God, the one who keeps us until the very end. And so we don't want to lose our saltiness. We want to, in that sense, be salty, not in the worldly sense of someone who's never satisfied, always bickering, always arguing, always murmuring and complaining, but here in this holy sense. And notice what this leads to. It leads to peace in the church, not tribalism. Understand verse 50? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. With this kind of salt, we're to be at peace with one another. Not tribal, not proud, not arguing for a position, but at peace, in harmony, enjoying the shalom that God gives. See, Team Jesus is a reconciled team. Holiness makes us this way. And so we, we, we should look at these concluding verses of this chapter and maybe ask ourselves a, a couple questions or remind ourselves of a couple of exhortations. Number one, do not resent God's salting and fire, those tribulations and those trials that purify us. Don't, don't resent those. It's one way that he preserves us from hell. And number two, know that salt and fire help our sanctification. And as a consequence of that salt and fire, we receive an eternal reward. That's the guarantee to every member on Team Jesus. Every person who is, who is humble, who is helpful, and who is holy, again and again has the promise of eternal reward. Specifically, God himself in his everlasting kingdom, where there is no more death or dying or disease. There is only glory and joy that we don't even have words for. And that's what God offers us this morning in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Receive it and receive Jesus and receive the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for your church. And we do ask, O oh Lord, that you would remember your church. That you would rescue us from tribalism and rancor and argument. And that you would, Lord, take your people and that you would make us humble and helpful and holy so that we might know peace between one another and so that we might bear effective witness to the world. You, you said in your word that the world would know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. Correct everything that revolts against love, we pray. And grant us to love one another deeply from the heart so that the world would know, Father, that you sent Jesus your son to redeem it by the sacrifice of his life on the cross and the resurrection three days later. Do this for your glory. Do this for our eternal joy, we pray. In Jesus' name.